Well, remember last week, now, I gave you uh, a number of crucial things that, uh, as you're building your own notebook here for church history, your own book on church history, basically, these are the things that uh, you'll want to remember. I know I said a lot of things last time, and Joe did a great outline, uh, by the way, for those of you that got that. And, uh, but uh, you, need to, uh, you need to remember these basic things. And this is what we talked about. I just want to reemphasize them because we're gonna, you've got to keep them before you because we're going to use them all through our study. I didn't give them to you just so I could say, hey, here they are. Uh, I gave them to you uh, so you could use them uh, throughout, uh, uh, throughout our whole study and then throughout your whole life. You want to remember these things. We talked basically about the need for church history and, uh, you know, how that, uh, you know, on the nine gates that I gave you, when we studied it, one of the gates was the old gate, and that basically deals with the fact that we always need to keep uh, the people in our church uh, trained for uh, understanding, you know, where their roots are, where they came from. Absolutely crucial. Uh, I think probably one of the main things that we accomplished last time that we're going to use all through church history is I showed you how that the book of Acts really makes up the foundation of church history. Uh, we find in the book of Acts everything that we need uh, as we go through church history to keep us, uh, keep us between the white lines, so to speak. I remember I told you how that uh, uh, the Old Testament history is pretty straightforward and pretty easy, but the New Testament church history, uh, you know, there's no recording of it in the Bible like there is of the Old Testament nation of Israel. Uh, so you've got to rely on uh, history itself, <clears throat> and the thing that keeps you straight in history is the book of Acts. And uh, we talked about all the different things in the book of Acts, and of course, you know, one of the things we talked about was the three cities that are outlined in the book of Acts. And that'll be Antioch, that'll always be good, that's where they were first called Christians in Acts chapter 11. Rome, and we talked about how that Rome will always be bad, and, uh, and then, of course, Alexandria, Egypt, which is always going to be bad. And you're going to find that when we get into church history, everything is basically going to form around those three. Church history, you know, uh, admittedly uh, is a very complicated uh, process because of there's just volumes of stuff for 2,000 years you've got to try to sort out. But the way I'm doing it for you will make it really easy for you to grasp, simply because I'm baking it down to the lowest common denominator, uh, much like I just gave you. The whole church history is Antioch, Rome, and Alexandria, and where it develops from from there. And uh, so you want to remember those three cities. Uh, obviously, we talked about the councils. A number of you have asked me questions this week since the last time about the, the councils. Wanted to know if there's any more councils today. And yes, uh, you know, they have what they call the ecumenical council uh, today. Um, the last council, I think, that put out by the Roman Catholic Church was, you know, around the 1960s, somewhere in there. But they do call them from time to time. They've changed shape a little bit, but it doesn't matter. They're all against the Lord. Uh, we saw the great uh, aspect that the gospel always goes from east to west, the movement of the Holy Spirit of God. We saw that within that movement, basically, uh, history, all history, church history, is basically God moving in a direction to accomplish this plan and the devil moving into opposition to stop that. 
And then I told you, and this is basically uh, where we stopped last time and where we'll pick it up tonight here in a moment. Uh, I talked about that as the book of Acts is your foundation for church history, the book of Revelation is going to be your structure for church history. And we're going to talk about that tonight, and we're going to see how that really lays itself out and how it works for you. I told you that uh, tonight, as we begin this second session, we're going to start to look at the three kinds of men uh, that make up church history. The first group was the Apostolic Church Fathers, and that'll be the group that uh, takes over after the death of the apostles. Many of them were influenced or won to Christ or were contemporaries of the apostles, uh, and they live on after they're dead. We have what we call Ananiasian church fathers. That'll be the group of people after the, after the uh, uh, apostolic fathers. That'll be the group that uh, uh, it is up to uh, 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea. They're called Anni, Anni meaning before, Ananiasia. Then we have the post-Nicaea, and that'll be the church fathers after uh, the Council of Nicaea. As you will find out, the Council of Nicaea is probably a great pivotal point in church history. We won't get into it tonight, but you'll understand better why it's broken down with apostolic church fathers and then anti-Nicaean church fathers and then uh, 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 post-Nicaean church fathers. And you'll see how that works out as we go through there. And then we talked about within these groups, we're going to find three kinds of people. And that will be biblical people. There will be people who will represent for us the Bible believers. Then we're going to find uh, anti-biblical people, people who are totally against the Bible. Then we're going to find compromising people, people who are somewhere in between. And you're going to be able to put everything and everybody we uh, go through in church history in that format. That's why it's so important to grasp that, to understand these basic things. Last week I gave you the basic fundamentals of the things you want to know that we're going to use coming through church history. So you want to make sure you get these down and define these out, that you know them. Um, it won't just be about this class, kids. It'll be about you taking these all through your life and remembering these things and using these things. And that's how it'll work. As always, any time, and I didn't say this last week, as always, any time you have a question about something, don't be embarrassed to raise your hand and stop me. Um, I'll be glad to answer it. Uh, I know that uh, for a lot of you, this is uh, very new stuff, and uh, I want you to uh, be feel free. If I say something that you want clarified on the spot, uh, just raise your hand. It, I'm sure everybody will benefit from it. Uh, just try to keep it t on subject with what we're dealing with and uh, keep it to the point, and I'll be glad to answer your questions. Okay, any questions about that so far that I just said? All right, good deal. Now... <clears throat> Let's get a little background of church history, and we'll see how important this is here. And I think that this will, this will also help you. Uh, when Christ shows up uh, at the first coming of Christ, and in your Bible, of course, this will be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, uh, this would be pre-church history, but it's very important to see how this thing works. When Christ shows up the first time, Rome is in power. And Rome, uh, as a world empire, uh, is under the corrupt... Uh, reign of what we know to be the Caesars. Most people don't know this, but they talk about a Roman Caesar. A Caesar was not a guy's name. Uh, it was a title. Uh, back in uh, the Old Testament in Nehemiah, you have Ahasuerus, and uh, he's one of the kings. But Ahasuerus is not his name, that's a title. 
and uh, people get confused on that. So you want to remember that the, there were many, many Caesars. Caesar was a title. It wasn't a particular individual person uh, per se. But Rome at this time is a vast network of highways and, and roads uh, all over the northern part of Africa, uh, all through Europe, the uh, northeast part of Europe. Uh, they had actually moved up through the Rhine River into Germany and, uh, into, and even into England. And uh, when they get into England and they start to move up a little bit, uh, they get stopped up in the northern part of England, which we know as Scotland. Uh, and, of course, uh, that part of England uh, never became Catholic. And uh, we know it today as Northern Ireland, and the war over there is against the Protestants and the Roman Catholics. See, it started all the way back there. So, now, Rome has been in power since about uh, 100 B.C., and she becomes a, she becomes a nation uh, or comes a, 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 a political force before that time, but she basically takes over world domination, and historians disagree on this exact date, but for, you know, for just for a point of reference, she begins to become a world power about 100 B.C. And I showed you Sunday, and this is why, you know, going through uh, what we did on Sunday in Romans chapter 13 will be more beneficial for you uh, than maybe the average person, because now you have a complete layout of the Gentile nations and if you remember, I told you Sunday that when Rome comes to power about 100 B.C., Rome stays in power uh, up to about 1520, 1530, up to the Reformation. So uh, she stays in power. Now, this is not apparent uh, as you just read through history books, but uh, we're going to base it on the Bible. And I told you, this is why the Council of Nicaea right here is, is, such, a, is such an important part. The Council of Nicaea is what empowered the Roman Catholic Church to stay in power for the next, up to the 1500s. So it's very important, very important. But uh, Rome has been a power now uh, over, uh, uh, over 100, 150, 200 years. She's made colonies all out through, uh, all out through Europe in these places. Uh, the phrase that you hear many, many times is that all roads lead to Rome. And that's based on the fact that during this time, the Roman Empire it has, uh, has literally got providences and, and colonies all over Eastern Europe, Northern Europe, England, and all through the Middle East. And she has settled in, uh, in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is just one of the many, many providences that uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, is, has under her control. Now, what they all did is this, and it's important that you understand this. Rome was the center of the world as far as they were concerned. So wherever these guys went that had to be the governors, uh, they tried to make the best of it by turning wherever they were into uh, a little Rome. And uh, if you would go to Europe today and you would find uh, places like in Trier, France, uh, or excuse me, Trier, Germany, uh, and many places through Europe, you actually find uh, smaller Colosseums. You'll find many of the Roman uh, ruins in, in Germany and France that, uh, that rival much of what you would find in, in Italy and Rome, uh, simply because that one of the things that Rome did was build their culture and their world into all the other places that they, they had as occupation forces. They did it for a couple of reasons. Obviously, they wanted to make the world Roman, and so they did that 
did this by indoctrination and making everybody induced to the Roman way of life and looking at things and their architecture and all that they do. Uh, another reason why they did it is because these guys, uh, everybody knew that Rome was the, was the fun capital of the world at that particular point. So all of these guys tried to make where they were uh, a little Rome. Uh, so they would uh, build it for themselves. They'd make it like Rome. They'd have the Colosseums. They'd have the great buildings. And they'd have all of those things so that they could, uh, they could uh, you know, exist uh, in some kind of high fashion, much like if they were back in Rome. Well, in Jerusalem, in Judea, that probably would, if, you know, it's, it would be like if you were in the military today and you, uh, you were a, uh, uh, you know, a major or a colonel and uh, you got an assignment, you know, they changed your duty location and uh, you were in uh, Washington, D.C., or you were, you were a battalion commander in Iraq, or you were somewhere in the world where it was a hot spot, suddenly you got orders that you're going to go to uh, um, someplace in Alaska, and you're going to be in charge of manure-keeping records. You know, I mean, that's basically what a Roman governor looked at when he went to Judea. Uh, it was a bad climate. It was bad country. The Jews were very unruly. Uh, and had many, many problems, obviously, because of Jesus. Jesus didn't help the situation any. The Jews were not happy with the Romans. Romans were not happy with the Jews. And uh, obviously, the Jews' way of dealing with it was very harsh. And uh, they would, uh, you know, they, they, would, they would set down the law. If you didn't follow it, you know, you could get, you'd get killed. I mean, they, didn't, they, they, were, they were very, 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 uh, very, very uh, hard taskmasters uh, in, over Jerusalem. Well, obviously, Rome is, is not an idiot, so they figure out in time the way to do this is to uh, get control of the people by their own people. And so they make political alliances or they give out favors and let a hierarchy begin to develop that, keeps all the, that are Jews, that keeps all the other people in, in, in check. And this is very important to know because... Uh, <coughs> Uh, the Bible groups that you find in the New Testament. Now, this is pre-church history, but you've got to, or the background of church, but you've got to understand this, that when we get into this thing, the political groups or the religious groups that you find uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are key to understanding this whole thing that's going on here with the Roman Empire. Now, the world is a Greek-speaking world. I can't emphasize enough for you the impact that the Greeks had on the planet as far as knowledge. Uh, to, this, to this day that we live here in 2010, if you go to college someplace, you join a sorority or a fraternity if you're a, a man. And uh, even today, uh, the idea of learning uh, goes back to the Greeks because the Greeks were held as the greatest knowledge and learners of all time. So you find Delta, Beta, Kappa. You find it always connected with Greek uh, alphabet letters uh, because that stands for the Greek Empire, which was symbol for learning, which is why you're supposed to be in college. But just like with the Greek Empire, they wind up being fornicated, dope drug places where everybody gets drunk and anybody got to do is see Animal House, and you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but but uh, the world is a Greek-speaking world, and that's very important to understand. Greek at this point is the universal language. There has only been, and I'm going to give you this now, we're going to come back and see it later, there has only been three universal languages down through the history of planet Earth. 
The first universal language was Hebrew. The second universal language was Greek. And the third universal language was English. Now, that's why you'll find God's absolute word. Uh, you'll find it where you go in history in those three forms. In the Old Testament, when God was dealing through the nation of Israel, uh, the Bible was in Hebrew. In the New Testament times, when the writers began to write, they wrote in the, in the Greek of the, of the what, what we call the Koine Greek, which is the, uh, the everyday common language, and the Bible was written in Greek in the New Testament times because that was the universal language. As times changed and language began to develop and God moved down through history, then he finalizes it all and puts the Word of God into English in 1600, uh, begins doing it in 1200, but finalizes it in 1600, and then the English language becomes the universal language uh, to up to the coming of Christ. But even though that the, uh, the world is a Greek-speaking world, uh, the Old Testament Hebrew and Aramaic are spoken by the Jews. There's a lot of junk going around that people think that Jesus spoke Aramaic. And, uh, of course, uh, he would never speak, speak Aramaic. I'm not saying that he didn't speak it. He didn't know how to speak it. But I'm saying that, do you ever notice how that every quote uh, that you're given in the New Testament when he speaks, it's told that in the Hebrew tongue? He spoke Hebrew, and he spoke Hebrew because the Old Testament, I think it's in, I think it's Zephaniah, I may not be right on this. The Bible talks about the fact that Hebrew is the pure language, it's the perfect language. Um, and that's the language that they speak in heaven, that's the language that they'll speak when Christ comes back, and that is the pure language. And uh, so in the Jews, even though that they're under that domination, they still speak the, the Hebrew and they speak the Aramaic. And Aramaic is a blend of several different languages that uh, has come up. Now, uh, I want to show you some of the groups here and and have you understand how these things figure in. Now, the first group we have here is what we know from the Bible, we all know them, is the Sadducees. The Sadducees are a group that give Christ so much trouble in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, they did not believe in a resurrection of the dead. And they would match up today, if you wanted a, a parallel to put them with where you're at today, they would match up today with the liberal churches. They would be like your Methodists, your Episcopalians, your Lutherans, and uh, your very liberal groups. Now, they were, a, they, were a, they were, if you notice that this is one of the groups that are very visible at the first coming of Christ, and they were in cahoots with the Roman Empire. This is one of the groups that, that uh, you know, decided that, uh, that they'd make their bed with Rome, and uh, Rome pretty much let them alone as long as the religious leaders uh, kept the people in check. And it was a, they made a, somewhat of a political deal with Rome. Therefore, uh, they get, you notice in the Bible, they're very high up. I mean, they have pretty much good access to the Roman governor when they're talking about Christ. Why? Because they work back and forth together. It kind of worked like the, the you know, the governor, uh, you know, he wanted a peaceful province. He didn't want a lot of problems. He didn't necessarily want to kill a lot of people. He just wanted to get along and, and, and do his job and get assigned someplace else. Well, the Jews didn't like them being there, and it caused a lot of problems. So it was easier for them to pick out certain people who were religious people and the Jews, make a deal with them, and simply say this, hey, look, 
we'll give you some special favors, we'll give you a better deal, but you got to help us. And of course, what we want you to do is, you know, to uh, uh, let us know who the real troublemakers are, keep the ones that you can under control, bring them along, make them think it's not so bad. But if you have some real guys that are really troublemakers, uh, point them out to us and, you know, we'll make them disappear in the middle of the night. Uh, things like that. The next group is a group called the Pharisees. And you hear about these two groups. You hear about these two groups uh, all through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, this group also gives the Lord uh, uh, some great problems. And uh, these men would, would match up uh, with the Roman Catholic Church today. If you go to Matthew chapter 23 and Matthew chapter 24, you'll find where uh, the Lord really takes these guys on. And these are the guys who Bible talks about uh, like to be called father. They like to wear the long robes. Uh, they like the high places in the, in the seating and the marketplaces. They love the esteem of men. And uh, we get our concept of what a Pharisee is today, is someone who is very vain, who loves the praise of men, who wants everybody to know who he is, wants everybody to recognize him for what he's done, and pretty much fall over him and just make everything about him. And that's the Pharisees. That's the Pharisees. Uh, along with that, you had a group which uh, were the scribes. And the scribes were a holdover from the Old Testament. Uh, the scribes' original job was to be the custodians of the Word of God. That was their job. Uh, they had to be from the tribe of Levi. And a scribe's job was the fact that he, uh, he was the custodian of the Bible. Any, any copying of the Bible had to be done by the scribes. You couldn't just sit down as a Jew in the Old Testament and, and copy out the Bible. That was delegated to the scribes. Scribe being like a pencil you write with. We, our word is scribble. Um, and they, they sat down and they wrote out, uh, copied the Bible. They were in charge of the Bible and complete custodianship was given to them. By this time, they're completely shot and worthless. So uh, the kingdom of heaven has been done now for 400 years or so, and uh, they're pretty much just in the mix of everything and pretty much just out of touch with reality and doing their own thing and surviving. Then you have a group called the Essenines. And uh, this is a group of Jews that basically rejected the Old Testament uh, and rejected the uh, Old Testament teaching. Yes. Essenines. Uh, you know what? I don't know how to spell it. I got, you, you know how I spell it? I mean, you know me, buddy. Here's how I spell it. S a neens. Essenines. If you've got uh, Ruckman's book on church history back here, I'll tell you one of the things about his book on church history that I think uh, makes that uh, an easy book to use and a helpful book. And I, if he wouldn't have done this, we'd all been in trouble. Um, do we even have one back here? The history of the church. Volume one and volume two. I just need one of the volumes. I don't care which. I guess. No. Oh. 
uh, in the back of this book, in alphabetical order, he has an index, and he'll have a list of every name of everybody that he talks about in the book. And all you got to do is look it up, and and uh, it'll pretty much give you uh, everything that you need uh, in it. And, uh, you know, that's a great way not only to get the spelling of the word, but it's a great way that if you want to look at something and find out particular and don't want to thumb through the whole book, mine's all laid out and marked out and chaptered out so I could find it. But you just go back there and you look it up that way, and it... Uh, it really, it really helps you put it all together. But the Essenines were a group that were, they rejected the Old Testament and its teachings. Now, your Dead Sea Scrolls, remember that, 1950, so in there? The Dead Sea Scrolls were uh, credited to the Essenines. Uh, that may be or may not be true. It, it, it didn't leave an Essenine name tag on it or anything, but uh, that's what the Jew, uh, Jewish scholars say, that they credited them to the Essenines. And, uh, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls were about as, you know, worthless as finding a mad magazine. You know, it, it, it didn't do anything for the Bible. But that's the Essenes. Then we have the group called the Zealots. And uh, that's easy. Z-E-L-L-O-T-S. <laughs> the Zealots were a, were, a, were a right-wing extremist group. They were very anti-Roman and very pro-Jewish. And uh, we won't get into this in church history, but in 70 A.D., uh, Titus comes down and literally wipes out Jerusalem. <clears throat> I mean, uh, <clears throat> this is where the temple, uh, re- the rebuilt temple, gets absolutely destroyed. And Titus comes down and just absolutely uh, destroys and decimates Jerusalem. And the reason why he does is because of the zealots. Uh, the zealots uh, in 70 A.D. tried to lead an overthrow of the Roman emperor. And, of course, the Roman emperor at this time is Titus. And uh, he crushes them. And he makes examples out of them. For 600 miles along the road, on both sides of the road, he crucifies thousands of them upside down, uh, uh, going into Jerusalem. They taught the people to stand and fight and to fight against the Roman Empire. And the funny part about it is, and this goes to show you what happens when you reject truth. You can make this parallel into anybody's life that you know that dumps the Bible and, and, uh, and then tries to go on with life pretending they're a Christian. They got clobbered and got crucified because they told the people to stand and fight against the Roman Empire. And the reason why they told them, because they said that the Messiah was about to come. When in reality, they were the very ones who had just rejected the Old Testament passages and crucified him, not 30 years before, see. So uh, they're kind of a goofy group that uh, are very, uh, very right, right-wing and very uh, anti-Rome, uh, but very pro-Jewish, but uh, also anti-against the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that's a group that's around during this period of time. Then you have a group called the, oh, this will be a little tougher for you. Uh, not really. I got it spelled out pretty good. The Herodians, H-E-R-R-O-D-E-E-E-N-S, Herodians. <laughs> Works for me. And uh, they're a pro-Roman group that was politically in line with Rome. And uh, these were the ones in the group that accused the Lord back in the New Testament of not paying taxes. 
Now, I mention these groups and give you a little background because you're going to run into them uh, in anything you study in history. You can't just cut it off and start with church history without getting into some of this, and you need to know some of this. Now, the next thing you need to know about this, and this is pretty important, that all of these groups minus the Levites, all of these groups minus the Levites uh, and the scribes uh, who are one and the same, all of these groups that I've just given you are a result of the exile of 606 B.C. in the 400 years uh, that God closed the Old Testament Scriptures. You'll remember, and we talked about this Sunday, and I laid it out for you, how that in 606 B.C., God was finished with the nation of Israel. Turn over to Psalm 78. I'm going to give you, give you something here that you'll always, always, always be glad I gave it to you. But then I guess you could probably say that to most of the things I give you, but maybe not. Now, Psalm 78 is a long psalm. It runs uh, 72 verses. And the theme of this psalm, you need to mark this in your Bible if you don't have it in there already. The theme of this psalm is the end of the kingdom of heaven for Israel. This is the theme of this psalm. This is a great psalm, and it deals with the end of the kingdom of heaven uh, with the nation of Israel. That's very important. And it goes on and on and on and on, and it talks about a lot of things and recaps a lot of things that got Israel into problem. But here's the verse you want to mark. This is the verse you want to stand out. I got my, my big red marker back here, my grease marker with my little yellow grease marker, and I got this done in yellow and then outlined in red. But it's verse 60. Because verse 60 marks for you uh, the end of the, uh, uh, and puts a lot of light into where we're at here. Look at verse 60, and let's read it. I'll read in 59 just so we get the deal here. So uh, when God heard this, he was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel. So he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he had placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. Now, that verse basically tells you right there that God is finished with the nation of Israel. All the components that made Israel great are covered here. The first thing he talks about is that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh and the tent. That would be the central theme of worship uh, for the nation of Israel was the tabernacle, a little bit later on, the temple, and, uh, and where it was all at, and with the main part of it. You've got to remember now that Asaph writes this, and Asaph writes this when David's on the throne, and there's no temple built yet. It's still in a temporary tent-time setting. So he's saying that, and he's prophesying here, that God is, going to, God is going to forsake the tabernacle of Shiloh. Then he says, verse 61, and delivered his strength, that strength will be Israel. Israel was God's strength. Israel was also God's glory on this earth in the Old Testament. Notice what he says. He delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. That enemy will be Babylon and Shennacherib, king of Assyria, 589-606 B.C. That ends the time of the Gentiles. 
For the next 400 years, the nation of Israel was held captive through various Gentile nations. And I listed those Gentile nations for you Sunday when we came through uh, those, those times of the Gentile concept. During that time, we find rising up within Israel's religious hierarchy as they go into apostasy even more, we find these groups. The Sadducees were not a group that you find in the Old Testament. The Pharisees were not a group that you find in the Old Testament. None of these groups are found in the Old Testament other than the scribes, but they have corrupted themselves. These other four or five groups that I've given you come up as a result of the captivity, and they are groups within the nation of Israel that God never ordained or never never put in place that are now tying the nation of Israel right into the Roman Empire, one way or the other. Yes? 589 is when Shennacherib comes down, and then 606 is when about the time that Nebuchadnezzar comes down. Why well, give those a standard time? Nebuchadnezzar really comes back three times. Uh, but you don't have to worry about that. 606 is all you need to know about today. <clears throat> These groups are a result, as I said, of the exile of 606 and the 400 years that God <clears throat> closed the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, and the Greek and Babylonian culture took, their, uh, took, the, took charge of everything. And you're going to find that uh, at this particular point, God is done with the nation of Israel. You find, and most people don't think this through all the way, you find the Jew uh, keeping the law and keeping the holy of holies and keeping the sacrifices and doing what he does uh, when Christ shows up, but it means absolutely nothing. God has finished the nation of Israel. Now, many of the people are doing it and doing it for the right reason simply because they're going with what they know to do and God honors that. But the scribes and the Pharisees know better. You know how I know they know better? I'll tell you how I know better. The Bible says when Christ was crucified on the cross, that veil was ripped from the top to the bottom, wasn't it? Now, before that time <coughs> that the high priest went in there or anybody looked at the Holy of Holies, <coughs> they got killed. But once that veil was ripped, <coughs> you could go in there all day long. You could go in there all day long after, before it was ripped. But now it was exposed. And you know what? That temple worship and that veil was still in operation in 70 A.D. when Titus comes down. You know what somebody did? Somebody sewed that rip back up and kept business just like normal. But it was done. God was finished with it. Philosophy and science and the humanistic ideals of man have, uh, are cultivated during this period of time. <clears throat> and we find uh, the nation of Israel uh, has, uh, as the Bible says, a form of godliness, but have denied the power thereof. In in, in, at the first coming of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Jew doesn't even resemble in everything that he does what he was at his high point under David and Solomon. And uh, it's even worse today, but <clears throat> most people don't have that kind of span to, of history to understand it. All right, <clears throat> now we're going <clears> to, <throat> with that little background, <clears throat> let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2, and let's look at what we call church history proper. Let's begin uh, this structure concept here, and uh, we'll try to go through one of these every week, but it's going to bog us down because once we get into some of this stuff, boy, there's just so much stuff, we've got to go back and tie it all together and put it all back together. I guarantee you this, <clears throat> when we're done, you would, we'd be hard-pressed anywhere on the planet to find a more uh, exhaustive and more uh, 
uh, layout of church history. Uh, maybe you would, I don't know, but uh, I'll tell you what, you'll have everything there is to have. Oh, I look at Revelation chapter 2. Let's read this here. Here's what it says. Under the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in of the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest uh, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcome, cometh, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now that's your first period in church history. This period is right here, and it's called the church at Ephesus. Now Ephesus is the real city. Ephesus is a real place. In fact, if you want to put this in your Bible, turn back to Acts chapter 20, and I'll show you how this thing works. Now, I told you that the book of Acts is the, uh, is the foundation of church history. Let me show you what I mean. <clears throat> now, basically, when you come through the book of Acts, here's what you basically have. The book of Acts starts out bringing you through a transition from the Old Testament nation of Israel and the kingdom of heaven into uh, the spiritual kingdom of God with the church and the body of Christ. You know that. That happens up to Acts chapter 7, and then the transition begins. And uh, by the time you get to Acts chapter 10 and 11, uh, the church age is in full mode. And uh, in Acts chapter 11, you find uh, an interesting phrase there at the church of Antioch. Uh, where the Bible says they're first called Christian at Antioch. And at that point, uh, things are moving on, and uh, we're, you're into now what we call uh, church history. You'll find that Paul takes three missionary trips. Those three missionary trips are for one purpose. That is to establish New Testament local churches just like you and I have. Just like you and I have. And uh, when you come up through there, uh, at the end of, of Paul's third missionary trip, uh, guess where he's at? He's, got a, he's right here at Ephesus. He's right there. Now, Paul's getting ready to go to Rome. And we know from the study of the book of Acts that that was a bad move on his part. And uh, he, he now loses the rest of his ministry and in time loses his life. He spends about three and a half years down there in Rome. Uh, and he's finally killed. So Paul never does one more thing outside of the prison uh, once you get to uh, Acts chapter uh, 21. In 21, he heads down to Jerusalem, and uh, he, uh, he gets into trouble. And uh, through the next couple of years, he stays, spends time here, Caesarea, wherever he goes. He goes before every Roman guy there is. Finally, he appeals to Caesar and winds up in Rome, and that's where he's killed. And the thing that you want to remember is this. Now, the book of Acts, if you look at it, has 28 chapters in it, okay? And you're commonly taught 
that church history starts in Acts chapter 28. And of course, that's not true. Church history, as you and I know, it starts in Acts chapter 20. Because in Acts chapter, once he goes to Jerusalem, he's done, see? But what you want to see is in Acts chapter 20 that he's saying goodbye, and he's at Ephesus saying goodbye to the elders of the church in Ephesus. Now, when you come to Revelation chapter 2, which is the structure of church history, what's the church first church you find? Church at Ephesus. See? You line those two up. So Revelation chapter 2 picks up where Paul leaves off in, in Acts chapter 20. And that's our first church. This church will take us up approximately, and all these dates are approximate now. Uh, it'll, it'll start around uh, Paul's time uh, in Acts chapter 20, which is about 60 A.D., and it'll bring you up to about uh, 180 or 200 A.D. Now, those dates are approximate. I mean, I don't want to give you the idea that I can tell you that the church at Ephesus started at 9 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday of uh, 60 A.D., and it was over uh, on Friday morning uh, at 9 o'clock, 200 A.D. Uh, there's some overlap here. But these are the general time periods that, that these church periods uh, run uh, when, you, uh, when you put them in the structure of the book of Revelation. And uh, the name Ephesus means fully purposed. Every one of these names of these seven churches has a name associated with it, <clears throat> and the name will be connected with what goes on during that period of time of church history. Very, 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 one more very, very important. I mean, you've got to remember these things. These are the things you want to get down in your, your own book on church history. Now, <clears throat> let me give you a little sidelight here that God showed me this a number of years ago, and, and, and many of you know this because you've been with me for any number of years. I've talked about it many, many times. Some of you new people, it'll be... Uh, <clears throat> and that is <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> the concept of the book of Revelation. When I was coming through church history... Uh, and I, it took me about 10 years to really work this thing out. And uh, I, uh, I was talking to Zach before uh, a class tonight, and he was asking me some questions about, you know, how I did things and how I learned things. And I told him that I was growing up uh, learning the things about the Bible. Uh, I would find certain things that I would dedicate myself to for maybe three or four, five, six years. And that's, I mean, I would do my other stuff, but that would be my main focus. And uh, very early on, I realized that church history and manuscript evidence was an absolute necessity if I was going to survive in the ministry. <clears throat> because it, back then, as it's even worse today, but back then we were getting bombarded with the issue of the King James Bible and all the other crap that was going on with it, and the church was falling apart at a very rapid rate. So I realized my necessity to, to do that. <clears throat> And, uh, and Zach's point was uh, that I had told you, I think it was last week, that I probably have read at least 2,000 books on church history in my, in my time. And obviously, you know, his fear is, well, you know, with all I'm doing right now, how in the world can I read 2,000 books and uh, spend, uh, you know, 10 years dedicating my life to church history with everything else I got going on trying to learn the Bible? And my answer to him was, you don't have to do that. Okay? You don't have to do it because I already did it. Okay. I can make it easier for you that you don't have to spend the time, give you the material 
that you can get it and move on with other things to expedite you getting to the place where uh, you can grasp these things without going through all of the stuff that I had to go through. Now, that may seem unfair to some of you, and some of you may say, well, that really isn't fair. Yeah, but you see, the guys that I learned it from spent 20, 30 years getting it and gave it to me. In other words, and I said this Sunday, I said this Saturday to the guys, and I'll say it to the gals Sunday, Saturday. (laughs) Right now, I'm so confused, I may not even make it on Saturday. But anyway, my job as pastor, one of the jobs I have is to be an expediter. Make things work quicker for you than it did for me. My job is to, all my life, and I feel that, you know, I, and, this is, and this is my own personal opinion. You may not agree with it. It doesn't matter. You don't know where I'm at with God or what God's done with me in my life or where I'm at. But I've looked at my whole life as that God has given me the ability to absorb great amounts of things and break them down easily and get them and, 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 and allowed me to focus on major things and gave me the time, the places to be able to do it that I could focus 10, 15, 20 years to get major things down that I had to get down. That, and I believe in all that in my heart that God did that so I would be able to give it back to you at a quicker rate. And, 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 you know, and, and I expect that same thing out of some of you uh, because, you know, just as, as I expedited you, somebody expedited me. And a guy who expedited me, somebody expedited him. And it goes on down the line. That is what Paul said to Timothy, the things that I've committed unto you commit to faithful men. Your job is to help somebody get it quicker than it took you to get it. But obviously, you've got to get it first, and that's what we're trying to do here. But as I was coming through church history, I, I, I was struck by the fact that the book of Revelation was the last book in the Bible, and it really formed, for me, the capstone of the Bible. Because the book of Revelation basically pulls everything together that God has done with the nation of Israel and also with the church age. Then I began to, uh, uh, the thought struck me, and I remember I built a sermon on this years and years and years ago, and, and some of you have probably heard the sermon in its original form if you've been, you've been around with me that long. I, I, I started reading in here, and I kept reading all the way through this, that, that he kept saying, that he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, I don't ever take anything in the Bible for granted. When I find a place where the Bible says, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear, to me, then I better stop what I'm doing and, and give a little extra time to that. Because he's purposely telling me if I got ears to hear what he's saying. Now, he doesn't say that about everything else in the Bible, but there are certain things that he said that about. So I've learned over the years that when he does that, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to back up and look at it. And all seven times in here, he says, uh, basically, uh, you know, that if you got ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So the first thing I realized that I was part of the church, and there's something that God wanted me to hear. Then there was another aspect that I, it hit me uh, a little bit later or not. And that was the fact that the writer of the book of Revelation is John. Earlier in my life, I had come through some things uh, looking in the Bible, and I saw the significance of the Apostle John. I, I, I remember, I still have the sermon. I still preach it from time to time or use excerpts of it. You've probably heard me do it on Bible study. That how that the 12 apostles represent 
the 12 kind of Christians you're going to have in any given church. You have one that's a phony, and let's don't pretend that everybody that comes to our church or any other church, that everybody's saved. See? That's just not a reality. I wish it was, but it isn't. One of them was a phony. Out of the 11 was left, you had three men who experienced God in a greater way than the other 11. And you already know who they are, Peter, James, and John. If you go through the New Testament, you're going to find that every major event, that when God is doing something absolutely, tremendously significant, the only ones that are there are Peter, James, and John. I don't know where the others were at, but Peter, James, and John are there. You know what that tells me? That tells me within any church, the majority of the people are going to come, be there, but they're never going to really experience the power of God to the degree that Peter, James, and John did. They were a minority within the 12. And then of the three, there's only one who goes all the way to the end, and that's the Apostle John. Once I saw that, I realized that John was the greatest type of a Christian in the New Testament of what my life should be. I began then to look at the books that John writes. He writes the Gospel of John, which portrays Christ as the Son of God. He writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which basically lays out every aspect of my fellowship with him. Incredible book. And then he writes the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. I began to study immediately the Apostle John. And I began to see that, as I started coming through it, that John was the only apostle that Jesus said he loved. Now, I know he loved them all. But John is the only one that he says that he loved. And I began to realize and see that Jesus had a special love for John. Not because he was playing favorites, but you better understand this. Jesus will have a special love for you than maybe the person sitting next to you. But that love won't be based on you being his buddy. It'll be based on how much you love him back. Or should I say love him first? And, you know, he had a special love for John because John had a special love for Jesus. <clears throat> I remember one time in the Gospels when Jesus is getting ready to tell the 12, <clears throat> that he's going to be betrayed. Remember that story? <clears throat> and the Bible says that he took the sop. Now, sop is a piece of bread. It's called sop because you put it in there. It's like when you go get a, uh, and I'm going to really make myself hungry on this, but it's when you go get a, one of those uh, um, beef sandwiches and you get the French dip. French dip. Yeah, yeah. And you get that. Okay, well, that's what you do. You sop it in there, you bring it up on the deal, and you eat it, you see. And he said to them, he says, the one of you that I'm going to give the sop to, that's the one that's going to betray me. And the Bible, if you go right down through that, the Bible says that every, every, every apostle, in turn, every one of them looks to Jesus and says, is it I? Is it me? Is it I? Is it I? When you come to John, John says, who is it? See? Now, to me, that was very significant. He didn't know exactly who it was going to be, but he absolutely knew it wasn't going to be him. That was profound for me, see? Then I think I found the greatest thing I've ever found in the Bible. And it literally changed my whole life. It changed everything about me, everything about my relationship with God, 
and it set me on a new course uh, in my Christian life that I've never gotten off course. And uh, even to this day, it is the number one thing that I follow in my mind and my heart. And I've never gotten, I've never gotten over God showing me this. And that's in the Gospels where the Bible says they're sitting around there. I think it's in John chapter 20. Uh, they're all sitting around there at the Last Supper. And the Bible says that John uh, leaned over and put his head on the breast of Jesus. Now, when I looked at that, after all where I'd come through and what I've seen, I realized something. I realized that John had done something that nobody else in the history of the world had ever done. David didn't do it. Solomon didn't do it. I don't know of another man in the Bible anywhere in the New Testament that ever got close to this. And it symbolized for me what my life should be. Because John leaned over and heard the very heartbeat of God. He heard, ladies and gentlemen, the heartbeat of God encased in human flesh. And I thought to myself at that time, that's exactly what will make me different from everybody else in this world called Christianity. And it will be a situation where if I can hear the heartbeat of God like John did. Now, i got to tell you this. The only other person in the history of the world that can hear the heartbeat of God is you and me because the heartbeat of God is the Word of God. And you can hear the heartbeat of God if you get in the same position John did and hear that heartbeat because God will reveal who He is through that book. But the heartbeat is an attitude. The rest of them didn't do it. And you know what else? When He's crucified on the cross... Everybody else runs and leaves and splits and heads off. John goes right to the end of the cross with him. You know what Jesus did on the cross? What did Jesus do on the cross and say to John? What did he do? The last thing he did, what did he do? He looked down at John, and there was Jesus' mother, Mary. And what did he do? He said, behold thy mother, and mother, behold thy son. In other words, he gave, he gave Mary to John to take care of after Jesus died on the cross. Now, you know what that's significant of? Mary's a type of the nation of Israel. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of Romans chapter 11. I mean, you think I just make this stuff up when I preach it on Sunday? That's Romans chapter 11 of the church being taking the watch care of the nation of Israel. John's a type of the church. John's a type of the church. You know why we got so many Johns in our church? It's true of any church. People like the name John. And uh, that's a, that they like the name John. Because John is the greatest disciple anywhere in the Bible. Now, you want to see it go even a little bit farther? You go back to the, I mean, this is off church history now, but uh, you've got to see these things. You go back in the book of Proverbs chapter 5, Proverbs chapter 7, you know what you find? You find the whore back there, the whorish woman. The whorish woman. And you go back in Proverbs chapter, oh, I don't know, 5, Proverbs chapter 7, and you'll find where this whorish woman is standing on a street corner. Picture the Roman Catholic Church. Picture religion. She's got herself all decked up, got her pace fainted. And the picture is any hooker down in any city, on the inner city, standing on the street corner, waiting to pick up some guy coming by. In fact, here comes the guy. And it talks about it. Here comes a guy devoid of understanding. And he, he, he comes, he passes by where she stands, her corner, and stands on the street. And you know what it says? It says, she speaks to him. And it's a picture of any hooker picking up somebody down there, any place, in any town, and saying, and, and the Bible says, she speaks with her face. Oh, that's very, that's what women do. 
And yet we come to the place where this woman takes this man and she ruins him and she absolutely destroys him by getting him into her religion, which is the Roman Catholic Church, by the way, and winds up absolutely destroying him. But the mindset is in the 20th century, 31st and truth, or 67th and truth, or wherever they hang out, and the bottom line is a picture of a lady of the evening waiting on a street corner that kind of takes somebody to entrap him. And let me ask you a question. In the secular world today, what do they call that guy? They call him a John. Why not a Bill? Why not a Ralph? Why not a Harry? Why not a Tom? Why, why is it John? I'll tell you why. Because that Bible is the absolute final authority that sets and defines the way things work. And you ought to be a John, and there's a harlot out there that wants to destroy your relationship with God. And you'll get it through philosophy, you'll get it through education, you'll get it through religion, you'll get it from everything else there that they want to do to take that thing away from you. Now, when I understood all of that, I understood why John wrote the book of Revelation. John writes the book of Revelation and God reveals to him, and this was, this was a long story to get to my point. I hope it was worth the trip. John wrote the book of Revelation and God reveals to him in the book of Revelation everything that goes on from the church age right up into every event, right up into eternity. And John writes everything he sees. And John was chosen that God used John to reveal those things to him. You know what that tells me? That tells me if you and I get in the position that John was in and hear the heartbeat of God, God will open up that book to you just like it did to him. And you know how John wrote? John writes in three tenses. He writes what has seen, what is now, and what shall be. In other words, he sees all three aspects of history. And God revealed it to John. He didn't reveal it to Peter. He didn't reveal it to James. He didn't reveal it to Mark. He didn't reveal it to Luke. He revealed it to John because John is a picture of what you and I should be and where we should be in our relationship with him. And when we get to that point, God will open up the Bible to you and me just like he opened up the book of Revelation to John. When I saw that, it changed my life. I never again, never again got over that. I never again forgot the fact that that's what my job was to be and never got to the point where I got my head too far off the heartbeat of God. Because there lies the answer, ladies and gentlemen, to getting all of this material. It isn't about how smart you are. It isn't about how great a syllabus. Your syllabus is just to keep the facts in front of you because the price of learning and repetition. You'll learn church history like you'll learn everything else by getting your head down and hearing the heartbeat of God. The heartbeat of God sends out the rhythm of what God wants you to do with your life in this world. Most God's people never hear it. Only one of the apostles ever heard it. Now this church is called the church at Ephesus, and Ephesus means fully purposed. It'll run us from about 60 to 70 A.D. up to about 180, around maybe 200. This church starts out with the apostles as the leaders, who by carrying out the work of God after the book of Acts and throughout the book of Acts, picking it up there in Acts chapter 20, spread the word of God uh, 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 all, through, uh, all through the world uh, as they moved out through it. And even though the Roman persecution is great, this church period sweeps uh, uh, across Asia Minor like a prairie fire. 
Paul and Barnabas make their missionary trips. Paul writes his writings, and uh, they are given to the respective churches. John writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the book of Revelation, and uh, on the Isle of Patmos after his exile by Rome, and off it goes. And this is the beginning of church history. This church was fully purposed. That means it had everything it needed to do the job. Everything. It wasn't like you and me where we got to go back 2,000 years to find out about history. Some of these people and these church fathers here, these apostolic church fathers that took over after the death of the apostles, they knew exactly what Jesus had said. They had seen him. This church has it all. They have everything that they need. Verse 2 says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and know how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And hast thou tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. You see, this is a good church. This is a holy church. This church uses the word of God to try the spirits like John told you to do it. And this church uses the Bible to prove all things like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 1 says. This church didn't have a problem putting somebody on the spot who said they were apostle. Because if you didn't think there wasn't people coming in already that wasn't on, that didn't have their apostle costume on, that weren't coming in and saying, well, I'm one of the apostles too. And the Bible says they tried those that say they were apostles and found them liars. That's kind of rough verse for modern day churches today. If I get up and list off a whole list of people and call them liars, half the people get mad. But that's what the early church did. The early church was using the Word of God and using it as the final authority to prove all things. And when somebody came in and said something, they put him to the test and found out if it was true or not. That's a good church. That's a good church. Because I guarantee you the work of the devil had already started. The work of the devil had already been in, in progress when Paul was there. And the work of the devil had already been done. Boy, you can see all down through history how when God moves to do something, the devil moves to shut it off and, and, and to give it the problems. This period uh, will bring up, us up from the death of the apostles and then into the lives of the men who take their places. And these are the first group that we talk about. This will be what we call the apostolic church fathers. And these men are very important. These men were the men who make up the leaders of the church after the death of the apostles, and they are called church fathers because they lead the church. There's no spiritual significance tied to it in any way, shape, or form. Many of these men are converts of the apostles themselves. Now, some of the main ones that you're going to find in church history, and we'll talk about those, is a guy, first of all, by the name of Clement of Rome. He lives about 300, uh, excuse me, about 30 A.D. to about 100 A.D., right in this time period. He overlaps even the time of Christ. And he's a good man who loves the Lord. Now, when men start writing things about these guys, sometimes they add tradition to it. You've got to be able to, to discern what is tradition and what is truth. Now, how do you do that? You do that by using the book of Acts. I'm going to show you. I'll show you an example. If you get that little book, Who's Who, on church history, or you get anybody uh, writes about Clement of Rome on church history, uh, they'll tell you that this is the Clement that is mentioned in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. That's what they'll tell you. They'll also tell you that tradition says that he was the first bishop or the first pastor of Rome. 
That's what tradition will tell you. Now, you know what I do with that? Absolutely nothing. It makes no difference to me one way or the other. The fact that he may or may not be the Clement of Philippians chapter 4, verse 3 is immaterial. Big deal. So what? There's absolutely no proof any place on this planet that he was. Absolutely no proof. So you got to be careful of tradition. There's no place anywhere where you can prove that the Clement of Rome was the Clement in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. The other one is that tradition says he was the first pastor of Rome. And of course, uh, that's 100% tradition. Absolutely no facts to it whatsoever. He writes two epistles. Epistles are letters. Now, you got to remember that you, you want to put this in the right concept. When Paul wrote his letters, his epistles, he wrote them to the church. That was their way of communicating. After the apostles died, the church fathers also communicated with the church, and they wrote letters. They weren't inspired by God like Paul's was, or Timothy's was, or Philemon's was, but it would be a lot like me writing a letter to a Baptist church across the country and telling them what I found out in the Bible, see? Not inspired of God, but, but good godly things can be in it, see? The inspiration of Scripture ended with the apostles. And these guys are the apostolic church fathers. They, I want you to understand, they write letters, but they're not inspired letters. Now, scholars read his letters of Clement of Rome, and here's what they say. Scholars say that his writings are valuable as because of the fact that in his letters he begins to exalt the leaders of the church over the lay people. Okay? That's what scholarship does with it. Now, a little bit later on, when the Roman Catholic Church, we'll talk about this here in just a few moments, a little bit later on, when the Roman Catholic Church wants to set up a priest class over the common ordinary people, and they want to have a proof text for it, where do you think they're going to go? They go to the writings of first and second Clement. Okay? That's what they do. That's what they do. In his writings, he says Peter was at Rome. 105,443,000% superstition. You say, well, how do you know that? Go back to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Peter is accounted for, and you, flash time, you find Peter in the book of Acts, that's when they have the little meeting down there in Jerusalem with him and Paul, and Peter clearly says, I'm going to stay in Jerusalem and take care of the saints and help them come along. You, Paul, go out to the world and do what God's called you to do. End of the story. Somebody says, Peter was the first pastor at Rome. Based on what? My foundation of church history says that he was not, that he stayed in Jerusalem and did. And of course, who doesn't know Matthew chapter 16, 17, that Peter was given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Peter's job has always been to the Jews, never to the Gentiles. But you get that from having a final authority that defines those things. And if you don't have that, you know who you got to rely on? The scholars. And the scholars will tell you up is down and down is up and black is white and white is black. Now remember now, we're going to have biblical men, non-biblical men, and compromising men. And this is where we begin to see the thing begin to break down. One of the greatest things I ever gave you last week was that four-point cycle. Man, movement, machine, 
monument. Boy, are you going to see that thing work through history. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, our next guy is a guy by the name of Ignatius. I-G-N-A-T-I-U-S. He lives about 50 A.D. to about 115. He's the bishop of Antioch. He writes 15 letters to the church. Ignatius is a good man. He's severely persecuted for his faith, and he's thrown to the wild beast and eaten alive by the lions in Rome. His last words are, I would rather die for Christ than be a ruler of the whole world. Good man. Absolutely great guy. In his writings, he is the first man when speaking about all Christians who uses the word Catholic. Now, let me explain the word Catholic. The word Catholic means universal. The word Catholic means universal. The word Catholic is from the Greek classical pagan concept of the Greek language. Greek language came in two forms. It called what we call the corne or the vulgate, which is, means vulgar in our language, which was the common language of everyday common men in Greek. Then there was a classical Greek. The classical Greek was used by the philosophers. It was used by the highly educated. It was used by the people who thought themselves better than anybody else. So there's two kinds of Greek. Your King James Bible, when it was written in its original Greek form, which would be uh, the, uh, the manuscripts out of Antioch, they are written in a vulgar Koine Greek. Shidiatic and Vaticanus and all of your high uppity uppity Catholic manuscripts in which your NIV and ASV come are all written in the classical style of Greek. Now, you know what he did? You know what Ignatius did? He got feeling frisky one day in his letters and reached out there and grabbed out of a vocabulary that he shouldn't have done, the word Catholic. And he used it in the right way. He used it in the sense that the, uh, the church of Jesus Christ was the universal church. What he should have said was, is that the church of Jesus Christ is the universal church that all men are born into. What he decided to do, because he wanted to, he wanted to show himself whatever, he said the, the, the church of Jesus Christ is the Catholic church. So, 300 years later, 400 years later, when the Roman Catholic Church gets up a full head of steam and they want to, somebody says, well, why do you call yourself Catholic? You know where they go back to? They go back to the good godly man Ignatius and said it from one of the church fathers. That's how they do it. That's how they do it. Now, this isn't very important, and you don't want to miss this. These men, for the most part, are good godly men who love the Lord and die in the Roman arena for him. They're, we're not talking about unsaved liberals. We're not talking about heretics. What we're saying here is this, and once you get through this section, you're going to understand why I am so hard-nosed about some of the things that I'm hard-nosed about. Because the first corruption, the first corruption of Bible Christianity doesn't come from the unsaved world. It doesn't come from the liberals. It comes from good, godly men, soul-winning men, taking that book and using non-biblical words that are not found in the Bible to express their Christian thoughts. And this is where we start to see compromise come in. We start to begin to use non-biblical terms that are not found anywhere in the Bible under any circumstances and place them into our conversation. And in time, those non-biblical concepts 
become, uh, become the uh, standard concepts of Christianity. After the death of the apostles, we see the first deviation from the Word of God by the church fathers in their writings. They start to use non-biblical words and terms and phrases of the Greek and Egyptian philosophers and putting them in their writings, and in time, the devil gets them into Christianity. I mean, somebody said, well, what's the big deal of Ignatius using the word Catholic? Oh, not much, except the fact that 100 years later, when it was used as a proof text to start the Roman Catholic Church, and for the next 2,000 years, damned 800 billion people to Christ. Other than that, I don't see any problem with it at all. But that's how the devil does it. That's how the devil does it. Exactly what he does. Ignatius, in his writings, he's the first one that refers to himself as a son of the church. That should help things along down the line. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not questioning his motive. I don't believe that he did it on purpose. But see how the mess you get in when you don't stay with that book. This is why in everything that we do in our church, we got a book, chapter, verse for it. Everything we do is based on a model from the way we started our church to the way we conduct our church to the way we deal with issues in our church to the way we build ministries in our church. It has to be based on an absolute standard that has a model and you just can't go in and make things up and put them in there and start deviating from the Bible. You give the devil an inch and he'll drive an 18-wheeler through it. Ignatius was a good godly man but don't forget, good godly men who love the Lord enough to die for them still have an old sin nature, and we all are prone to exalting ourselves or making ourselves look better at any one given time. My advice to you is to follow his example of devotion to Christ, follow his example to die for Christ, follow his life and his commitment to the Lord all the way. But when it comes to the foolishness, the things that he writes out in his letters, he goes his way, and I go mine. That's how you got to approach it. Now, let's look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, and we're going to see how the Bible noted this was going to happen. I told you when we started that every one of these, every one of these, every one of these periods of church history are going to line right up to what happens in history. Look what he says there in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Why? Because thou hast left thy first love. That first love, ladies and gentlemen, is your Bible. You say, well, I think your first love is Christ. You wouldn't even know there was a Christ without reading it in the Bible, you idiot. How stupid people are. I'll tell you what. People drive me nuts. If stupidity was a crime, some of God's people would be doing 20 years of life. You wouldn't even know there was a Christ without the Bible. The Bible is the book that told you about it. And we find here the first deviation from the Word of God because they have left their first love. Notice it didn't say they lost their first love. It simply says they left their first love. And we see now with good godly men who are saved and love God enough to die for Him, just like you find today. There's men out there who I believe love God 
I believe they would die for Christ. I believe that, they, that they're pastoring churches and, they, and, they, and they, they love people and they love this and they love that. But the bottom line is that means absolutely nothing if you don't have the final absolute of God's Word in your life. And when you start to trade the Word of God for your Christian education, your higher circle of learning, and all the terms that come along with it, and you start adding the stuff into the Bible that has nothing to do with the Word of God, that's where it happened. And I'm telling you, this is why I am the way I am. This is why it comes down to simply that if it, we, we do it by the book, we do it by the Bible, and if it's not in the Bible, we ain't doing it as far as following what we do in our operational procedure. Bottom line is simply we have to operate with an absolute final authority that never changes because we live in a world that changes every 15 seconds. And worse than that, the Christianity changes every five seconds. And you've got to have something. You've got to have an anchor. We have Patheus, 60 A.D. to 130 A.D. He teaches that Christ is born in a cave. We now come to the point where he said John didn't write the book of Revelation. And he also says that Peter's in Rome. wonder where he got that idea from. Then we have a guy by the name of Epicurus, E-P-I-E-T-C-T-U-S, 50 A.D. to about 120. He's really not a true church father, but he's given in most of the list because of his writings that follow uh, the thought of Christianity. He's a Greek Stoic philosopher who tries to put together the concepts of Christianity with Greek philosophy. The greatest idea of putting him in a mindset today would be Norman Vincent Peale, see? Yes. Uh, Epicurus, E-P-I-E-T-C-T-U-S. Then we have a guy coming along by the name of Macon the Heretic. Sometimes he's called the Beast. And he's an absolute, he lives during this period of time too, and I don't have an exact date on him. But uh, his name is well-deserved, the heretic. He does about as much damage to the writings of the Bible and the things of the Scriptures that it's hard to even fathom uh, what he does. And uh, what he does in the first and second century, his greatest claim to fame is found over here in Luke chapter 11. Come over to Luke chapter 11. Yes, ma'am. Well, he is, he's, he's put in most lists of church fathers, you see. But he would be one of the non-biblical church fathers, is what I'm talking about, see. Hey, honey, the greatest damaging man in the history of the world was Origen, who corrupted the Word of God and believed that Jesus and God was going to be, resur- uh, Jesus and the devil were going to be buddies again someday, and didn't believe in hell, and didn't believe anything. And Philip Schaff, in his book, says he's the greatest Christian that ever lived. So... Don't be surprised if make on a heretic doesn't make the top 10 list. Now, here's what he does. Here's his claim to fame, Luke chapter 11. Now, if you have a King James Bible, look at verse 2. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, as it is in heaven, so on earth. 
Give us, uh, give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Now that's called, uh, that's called the Lord's Prayer. That's wrongly called the Lord's Prayer. The Lord never prayed it. It's the disciples' prayer, but that's a mute point. But here's what making a heretic did. If you got an NIV Bible this morning or tonight, here's what your NIV says when you pick it up in verse 2. It says, Father, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, but gives us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sin against us and lead us not into temptation. Now that prayer is found in the NIV, has 20 words left out. That prayer right there is the satanic prayer that's found in the dogma and ritual of the high black magic. That is a prayer to pray to Lucifer as God. And you can find that in print. You'll find that uh, that, uh, that whole concept comes in with Constantine, and it, Constantine gets it from Macon the heretic, and what he did is he took that prayer, and he left out 20 words, and when the satanic cults want to have a prayer for Satan, they use that prayer, and lo and behold, that satanic prayer is found in your NIV Bible in Luke chapter 11. You know why? Because they come through Constantine, which got it from making a heretic. Thank you very much. Oh, there's a lot you got to learn, boys and girls, about what goes on out there. I think people sometimes, when I rail about the other translations and, and hold up the King James Bible, they just think that that's my hobby horse. Friend, you ain't got a clue. You ain't got a clue. We're done with this thing here tonight. You're going to know so much about manuscript evidence and the other version of the Bible. You'll be able to take anybody on anytime, anyplace, anywhere, if you get your material down. I'm not teaching it for that reason. I'm teaching it so you can learn it. But the bottom line is, if you can learn it, you might as well use it. Making a heretic. Yeah, he's a good one. Then we have Vasilides, 138. He taught that Christ was only human in appearance and that he did not die on the cross, but rather Simon the Cyrenian. Simon Cyrenian was the guy that helped the Lord carry the cross, remember? In other words, Vasilides said that somewhere in the process they got confused and Jesus escaped and <laughs> Simon <laughs> went on the cross. <laughs> then you have Polycarp. 69 to 155 A.D. His greatest claim to fame is Polygrip. His father's name was Polycrap. Figure it out from there. Pardon me? Was a making a heretic. Pardon me? 138, I'm sorry. Polycarp is the good godly man who was burned at the stake in 155 A.D. When asked to recant his faith in Christ, he simply states, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he hath done me no wrong. How can I deny him now? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He writes one letter to the Philippian church in which he states that the church is the mother of us all. And clear violation of Galatians chapter 4, verse 26, that tells you that New Jerusalem's our mother. 
You see what happens when you start to deviate from the Bible and get creative? Start to make up things that you want to sound neat, scholarly. You want to impress people. Now, I'll tell you, and I know I'm, I know that, I mean, I'm no idiot. I know that I'm about as impressive in speaking and talking to people as a, a busted vacuum cleaner. But the bottom line is this. I've never, worked, never tried to impress anybody with what I do. My, my whole philosophy is if you like it, fine. If you don't, fine. It doesn't matter to me one way or the other. Because I know what happens when you get caught up in that, that you try to start impressing people with what you say. When you start to come to the point where you clean up your act, and I don't, don't understand me. I think that when you preach and you do things, you got to do it well. I'm not saying you don't want to sound like you got a mouthful of marbles when you're talking. you got to know your material. But just stick with the book, man. Just stick with the book. I, I've learned a long time ago that you just preach what God gives you, and when you get it out of the book, it'll be the right thing. And these guys got too, work, too busy trying to impress people. You see, I mean, can you imagine after the apostles went off the scene? I mean, put yourself in their place. After the apostles went off the scene and they're leading the church, do you realize how that pushed them into the limelight, so to speak, that now churches were looking to them for leadership? You know, that can work on your ego after a while, and pretty soon you start reading your own press releases. You think you're as good as everybody says you are. Then you've got to keep it up. So you've got to start impressing people. And in this case, they started impressing them by stepping outside the Word of God, and that's where the devil got them. I mean, it's easy. It's just that simple. Polycarp was a good man. But he made a, should have kept his mouth shut when he talked about the fact that the church is the mother of us all. That way up Justin the martyr, 100 A.D. to uh, 165 A.D. And he's pretty much a philosopher, well-educated, write two sets of works, wrote in one of his writings that a man is regenerated, here it comes, by the sprinkling of water. See how it comes in there? Now we get this heresy beginning to creep in in the writings of the early church fathers. We see the devil starting to use unbiblical terms and men who compromise, saved, good, godly men who are willing to die in the arena for the Lord Jesus Christ but can't stay true to the Word of God. They start using unbiblical terms, non-biblical terms to set the roots for the heresy that's going to follow. They start borrowing words, phrases, and ideas from the Greek and pagan Roman philosophers. They incorporate them into the writings of Christianity. And by the end of the first century, uh, moving into the second century, we have the bad doctrine starting to form. We now have the idea that the church should be called Catholic. We now have the idea that maybe water baptism and sprinkling of water has something to do with regenerating you. We now have the idea floating around that the church is the mother of us all. We now have the idea that we're all sons of the church. Now we have the idea that bishops maybe should be over the lay people. See where it started? didn't start with the devil. It started with good godly men who loved the Lord Jesus Christ enough to die for him, who just lost their first love, that book, and started adding other things into it. And you don't need anything into it. The book will take care of itself. Now, that's why this church, I have always, no matter where I've been in my life, from the time I was trained one way, stay with the book. You don't need anything else. If the book won't get the job done, then we are wasting our time trying to get it done. If the book isn't enough to sustain you and build this church by preaching it, 
We got to build some beautiful edifice out here that's got all kinds of beautiful things to make people want to come. If the real beauty of this church isn't the book that's on that table tonight, then we all better go get a job and start doing something else that's an honest vocation. Now, to me, that's all I need. I don't need a big church. I don't need a big sign. I don't need a big anything. I need one thing. I need a book. I need an absolute book. And when a man or a woman believes in that book, then they stay with that book. That's why I beat you kids left and right about learning the principles of the Word of God. That's why I make you write them down in syllabuses. That's why I hold you accountable with operating by them. Because you can never, never, never get out of that book. And the moment you do, you're in trouble. And that's what happened. That's what happened. Down the line, we get, a, we get a whole church system built on it. We go from there, time we get to 5600 A.D., you know what we got? We got a church that builds itself the whole, everything that the church is, is built on these six things. It's built on a mass. It's built on a Eucharist. It's built on the sacraments. It's built on the Holy Unction. It's built on the Catholic Church. And it's built on the priesthood. And the only problem is, there ain't one of those six things you can find in the Bible anywhere, any place, any time in 31,171 verses. You know why? Because by that time, we've taken the church fathers and their writings outside the Bible, and we built a whole religion now outside the Bible. And it runs just fine. And when you ask them why, they're going to take you right back to Ignatius Polycarp and the church fathers and say, there's why. There's why. How can you deny him? He died in the arena. How can you deny that these things? Well, you can, but you better know what you're doing when you try to do it. We say the same thing today with the, uh, with the, uh, uh, the heresy of, uh, of uh, Calvinism. Sovereignty of God, irresistible grace, all that stuff. It, that's not in the Bible. We the same thing with a goofy charismatic, slain in the spirit. Where's that in the Bible? When you start to have the freedom to make up whatever you want to make up and put it into the Bible, you're on your way. You're on your way. No, no, you've got to have an absolute standard. You have to have an absolute standard. All right, we're going to hold up there. <clears throat> and we'll pick it up here. Uh, yes? That, that list of men that you gave us tonight, these are all apostolic fathers? Yes, those are all apostolic church fathers. We have not got into the... The, uh, we'll get into the Antiochian Fathers next week. Yes, sir. Did you, uh, I mentioned one of the six things that uh, ended up getting uh, Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yes, right here. Mass, Eucharist, Sacrament, Holy Unction, a Catholic Church, and the Priesthood. Huh? Somebody tell me what the Holy Unction is. Yeah, it's when you die, get the Holy Unction. In other words, you know, you're laying there on the battlefield and your guts are hanging out and the guy comes over with the oil and he puts a cross in your head and says the last rites to you. That's Holy Unction. Yes, go ahead. For the, for the 15th? No, where do you want to go? <laughs> You're buying. You're, you're buying. I'll bring my salad dressing. Okay. What do you got, honey? For making the heretic, do you have a date? No, I, no, I put. I told you. I yeah, put him. I don't have a date here. I put him down around the uh, around the second century. Okay. 
We put him in our second century. Any other questions? All right. Well, I, uh, we'll leave it all down here, up here because we got the uh, absolutely incredible, important, dynamic ladies' meeting coming up Saturday morning, and uh, you want to be here. For